Amen. Take your Bibles, if you wouldn't, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, the teaching passage for today is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 2 through 10. Verses 2 through 10. So I'll, I'll read those for you this morning. Follow along in your scriptures as I read for you. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 2 through 10. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy. And for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind, depraved of the truth, imagining that their godliness is means of great gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is the word of the Lord. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for these words of instruction, of clear instruction from Paul to Timothy to the Ephesian church and now to us. We ask that we would be attentive to the word. We ask that right now that we would, in our spirit, in our body, that we would just take that deep breath and set everything else aside, and that we might tune ourselves only to you, and to what you might have for us in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. In verse 2 of 1 Timothy chapter 6, it concludes with these words, teach and urge these things. And so I want to begin today's message with these words, teach and urge these things. Um, this refers to the preceding section, which Paul gives instructions concerning the ministry of the household. That is one of the themes that flows through this particular passage, is household. How this structure, it's not an atomistic structure, it's not just singular, um, but rather the structure of a household is bound together um, in bonds of unity. So it is more, it's molecular in structure. It, it has defenses against outward attack. And Paul is saying this is how God has created things to, to be. And honor is holding that together. And we are to honor particular individuals. The church is diverse it's made up of different groups, but there is unity in Christ. And so we're to honor one another. Honor is to be shown in the church, the young and old, male and female, um, widows, elders, and finally bond servants within the congregation. And now Paul urges Timothy to teach and urge these things. To teach is to instruct. And to urge is to call people to obey. So one of the themes that runs through this short letter is the theme of household and household instructions, order. The other theme is godliness, godliness. So these two things go together. Now, godliness is teaching, right? So it's, it is a cognitive or intellectual understanding of what God's word teaches. But godliness is not complete unless there is obedience. And you'll see these, these kinds of things throughout the, this letter that 
Um, Paul says, Timothy, watch your doctrine and your life. Why? Because it's about godliness. Godliness is the bringing of those two things together. And, and the whole point is, is stated earlier in the book so that um, the church might be that pillar and buttress of truth. And the aim is out of a heart of love that we do these things. And so here we, we see um, many of these themes converging when he says, teach and urge these things. Timothy was called to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience in teaching. By now, it should be clear that the central task of the minister is to teach the word of God and to urge the members of the congregation to obey it. This is the elder's work. This is the minister's work. Have you ever wondered why preaching and teaching of God's word is such a central element to the work of ministry? Have you ever wondered why is preaching and teaching God's word so crucial to the life of the church? There is a tendency to minimize what takes place in this hour at this time in your lives and in the life of the church as if we need much more than what happens right here, right now. This is clearly what we're doing in the worship of God through the proclamation of the word of God is the central and main thing that Jesus Christ himself intends for the church to be about. We ought not minimize it. In fact, here it is magnified, the word preached. Why is that? Now I'm going to say some things through this message. And this message, um, I, want, I want to set something. So ask that question. Can you hold that question? Why is preaching so important? And, and let me just kind of diverge and say this. The answer and how you view the answer is really important. right? Because what we, we tend to answer this answer over here of um, why preaching is important, we tend to put it in a little tiny box, either with the label me or the label church, or the label spiritual life. But let me say this. If you will frame the answer to that in the large overarching category of cosmos, the answer is cosmic. The answer is important in everything. Because what you're going to see here. And as we, as we launch into Holy Week and Good Friday service and Resurrection Sunday, and then we begin a series in God and government, it's really important through all of those things that you see something here in the text. The answer to why is preaching central, there is a cosmic answer. Don't limit it. Don't think that your spiritual life is somehow separate from the rest of your life. You will not become a godly person that way. You will have teaching, but you will have no traction. We need people that have teaching that is true, but it has to have traction in our life. And listen, here's the thing. As we move throughout Resurrection Sunday and we understand the context of where we live today and we talk about God and government, how, how, how God's word rules over everything, not just me, but um, over the entire world, over the entire universe, that this is good for life, it's good for the all of life, we'll understand that there's a cost. Godliness has a cost. We can't be simply people of teaching. We have to have traction in life. See, that's godliness. It's got to come together. That's what we need to teach, and we need to teach and, and learn for ourselves and model for our children so that they might carry that. See, this is a multi-generational teaching. This is not just good cosmically. It is good for all of time, and we have to think of it that way. So do not limit the Word of God. Open your mind to God's truth. Let it affect every area of your life. Here's the answer to that question. So let's bring this question down now. Why is preaching central? Well, it is through the truth of the gospel that men and women come to be saved from their sins. And it is the truth of God's word that men and women are sanctified. In other words, they live differently in the world. Truth matters. Truth matters. The truth of God's word, the truth of the gospel must be 
proclaimed in order um, for men and women to be saved from their sins and to grow up in holiness. That's the work of a pastor, to teach God's truth and to urge men and women, young and old, to believe it and to obey it. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a truth claim. It's a truth claim. To believe the truth of the gospel is to be saved, is to be safe. To reject the truth of the gospel is to be condemned forever. Is this not what the most famous of all Bible verses teaches? You were in this perhaps last week in your small group. We were talking about the structure of the passage and the structure of the passage since it's a narrative there in John 3 and his, his uh, um, interaction with Nicodemus. And one person said from our small group, well, certainly the climax of the passage has to be John 3.16. It's the most famous book in, or the most famous verse in the Bible. Um, that's probably not actually the climax of the passage, but they were right. It is a well-known Bible verse. It says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And it continues, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. Why? Because the world was condemned already. Right? If you're here without Jesus, you, you are in condemnation already. Jesus came to save. He did not come into to the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So to be saved from condemnation, one must believe a truth claim about Jesus Christ. And if we believe on him, then we must know the truth about God, about Jesus, and why he came to save us from our sins. Truth matters, and the gospel must be proclaimed and taught if men and women are to be saved from their sins. And those who have believed on Christ, men and women who have been saved from their sins and are free from the condemnation that is due them, need to understand the truth in order to grow up in the knowledge of truth. And that's why the scriptures speak to us, speak to Christians, and it says this, do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may be able to discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Transformation transformation or sanctification comes through the renewal of the mind that results in action, right? It is, it is truth with traction. That's what he's getting at. Truth matters. It is the truth that saves people. It is the truth that sanctifies people. That's why in John chapter 8, Jesus says this, if you abide in my word, you truly are my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 8. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are in, in the light of God's word. Now you are in the light of, of the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. The truth matters. And the truth has to be proclaimed. And the question that follows that is, well, what is the truth? What is the truth? Um, that's an important question to ask and to answer. Well, we say that God is the truth, but we have to say more than that, right? We have to explain that, um, that God has revealed himself to us in the word of God and he, and he has revealed himself in the world that he has made. Um, we understand who God is from the word where he clearly explains who he is. In other words, God has not left us on our own to wander about in darkness. God has spoken through the word of God. We can know the truth. Now, the Bible isn't exhaustive in its truth. But there is enough. It is sufficient. It is sufficient 
for all of life that we encounter, for everything in life, every problem, every situation, every circumstance, the word of God is sufficient for what we encounter. We can trust God's word. So that is why ministers are called to preach the word, because truth matters. Truth matters. So I want you to think about this, because oftentimes when we come into this room, we think truth matters, but we think truth matters only in this small box of me, or my spiritual life, or church, but it is truth that is cosmic truth. And that is why we have to set aside the lies that we see and call them for what they are, because all the world, all the cosmos is under the rule and reign of Jesus. Right? So we have to set aside the lie that there is some neutral ground in the world that is not claimed by anyone that we can exist in. That we can exist. You see, there's either, what the Bible says is there's either darkness or there's light. It's one or the other. There is this, no, there's no neutral ground called the secular world. Okay, so we, we, we believe that. That is an absolute lie, and we've got to set that aside. Either you are following Jesus, or you are an idolater. There's no middle ground. Does that make sense? Are you with me? Am I coming across too strong? You guys are like, whoa, he's locked and loaded. There's no middle ground. That's why it should not surprise us when a man in a dress who reads stories in the library to children gets arrested for child pornography. You see, there's, there's either darkness or there's light. Everything is under the rule and reign of Jesus. And we have to reorient the categories in our thinking to categories that we find in God's word. Because all truth is God's truth. But there is no truth separate from God's truth. Right? So we need to be willing to look back over history as we understand it and call racism, racism. But we also need to look at what is being called doing the work as racism. We have a new form of racism. We have new forms of oppression. We have all kinds of things that are, be, be, that are, that are being called a, a truth, and this is how you ought to live. It's a lie. It's a lie. And we can't think that, well, the Bible's good for just my church. Because that's not what these verses say. These verses say that those that believe lies, those that tell lies, believe that they can gain from those lies. They're driven by a particular lust for gain. We tend to look at those that are deceivers in a very narrow way within the church, but those deceivers here didn't begin in the church. They began in other places. They're, encountered, they're, they, they, they're coming into contact with the church. These lies are coming into contact with the church, and that is why Paul is instructing Timothy that he needs to preach the word of God and proclaim the truth so that the people that sit in these rows know how to refute the lies and not just refute the lies. That's not enough. But to live as godly people and live as godly people in a particular way with a particular attitude, content, restful. Our minds set on the king who is still in control we ought not to be frantic in these times. We have no reason to fear. So let's look at the rest of, of this passage. Here, um, this is the reason in this passage that, 
that Paul instructs Timothy in this book to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. He was to practice these things. In fact, the word is immerse himself in these things, in them, so that the world, not just the church, but the world through God's people would see his progress, see Timothy's progress, so that that progress would go through the church to the world. He was instructed to keep a close watch on himself and his teaching. He was to persist in this. By doing so, he would save both himself and his hearers. The word preached is central. Please don't minimize it. I I will tell you I'm not the best communicator of God's word, and that's fine. I can get a C. God's word always gets an A right? We have the Spirit of God that speaks to our hearts and our lives, right? The Spirit always gets an A whenever the Word of God is proclaimed. So we ought not to focus on the preacher, amen? Let's focus on the Word of God, and that is proclaimed, and that we hear it, and that truth gains traction in our life. So we can see that there's an obvious application to the elders, that the elders must be faithful, whether it's here or, you know, Mark is um, one of our elders in charge of small groups, and he is the teacher ensuring that God's word is taught throughout the small groups. And, And John, as you know, oversees our vision and has been working in families and with joy as we cultivate joy within our whole church that that is grounded and rooted and and it moves through and moves um, forward by the word of Jesus Christ proclaimed in the gospel. And so there's an obvious application to elders, to preachers of the word, but there's also an application to us. Are you aware of the power of truth? Truth is minimized in our age, but truth is incredibly powerful. Do you agree that when truth is known and believed, it is in fact transformational? What we believe to be true determines the trajectory of our lives and it impacts every decision that we make. But in our day and age, we're oftentimes oblivious to this reality. We are rarely mindful that our deeply held beliefs affect our cognition and our outlook on life, our priorities, even our mood and our emotions, how we speak and act, and the way we spend our time and our money. Everybody has these kinds of truth-informed convictions that direct their lives. Truth matters. To those who know the truth of God's word, I ask, are you eager for it? Are you eager for the truth? Like, this is a heart check. How did you come to church this morning? Were you eager for the, the truth? Were you, were, were you ready? Um, did you feel like the week wrung you out? Um, even as you fed yourself, there's something that God promises his people when they're gathered together like this. That he says that he dwells with them, that he feeds them, that this is spiritual food, it's grace for us. Are you thirsty? Are you hungry for it? Truth matters. We ought to be hungry for it. I urge you then, as we begin this passage, this is all introduction, that you would pray the Lord's blessing on your pastor and those that minister the word of God. God's truth will prevail in the end. We can trust that. We can trust that God's truth will prevail in the end. Um, it, It is oftentimes God's truth prevails like a long hike, the truth is, is prevailing when you get to the mountain, but those of you that climb mountains, sometimes you're, you're scaling, um, you know, you're, you're climbing up, but sometimes the victory is, begins in the foothills, and it's up and then down. And then it's what? And then you, you hit bigger, and what do you go? You go back and you go forth. And through a crevasse, and up. God's truth will prevail. And so when you go down, and it seems like we're going down, don't ever think that his truth will not prevail. His truth will prevail. Above all, because God is truth. He has given us his word, and it will preserve to the end. But he has also designed this world in truth. 
God's truth permeates and governs the created world. And so things that are false over time will self-destruct and God will be known as the God of truth. Where falsehoods and lies predominate, we find division and disorder ultimately leading to death. Truth will prevail. And when we are in the light of the kingdom of God, we will know. This is why Paul urges Timothy to teach and urge these things. We are to be, in dark times, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And the aim is out of a heart of love. We love the world because God loves the world. We love the glory of God because God rightfully loves his own glory. And so we love the world for the glory of God, which means proclaiming the truth and not a lie to the world. Tell the truth. So two things in this passage. It's great. It's great to hear those children. You guys are doing a great job. Um, being, being, being parents, we don't ever mind the, yes, we don't ever mind the kids in service. I was told by one of our members that um, their infant son was repeating the words of a sermon. Um, they're at home. They've got some, some issues with COVID. And as soon as they turned the TV on for church, he began to repeat the words from a sermon from like, now it's three weeks ago. This was last week, from two weeks ago. And that's a great thing. These things stick because they're truth. So two things here. Untruth produces ungodly division. Look in your text at verse 3. If anyone teaches different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and, his teach, and, and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about the about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and the constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of great gain. There's a lot here. We'll move through it rather quickly. What makes a false teacher false? And again, how are, what's the category we're thinking about? We need to think about the church, but I ask you to think about this what? Cosmically, what makes a false teacher false? A false teacher is a false teacher because he teaches something other than the word of God. It says here, false doctrine. Doctrine simply means teaching. A different doctrine that implies a different standard. False teaching implies a different standard. So what is the standard? Um, what is our teaching to agree with? Look at verse 3. It says, our teaching is to agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus. Right? The word translated sound means healthy or wholesome. And so we, we could go directly to the words of Jesus, and it would be a good place to go first. Where would you go if you wanted to see the words of Jesus? They're found in what color in your Bible most of the time? They're found in red. You'd go to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you could read the words of Jesus. But that's not the only place. Why? Because we don't find just the words of Jesus here. Now, we find the actual words that Jesus spoke in those Gospels. But the word of Jesus, where do we find that? We could go, what, back into the Old Testament. Right? Because every place, every page speaks and points to Jesus. Right? So when, when he says here that, that sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's speaking about all of the Bible. Right? When mankind sinned, right after Adam and Eve sinned, and we all fell into sin, what does the Bible then point to? A redeemer. One that will redeem. One that will crush the head of Satan, even though his heel is wounded. Right? It points to a redeemer. So what, does the, what do these sound words of Jesus produce? These sound words of Jesus produce godliness. It's the, at the end, can you see there in verse 3? At the end of verse 3, it says godliness. Godliness is those who hold to right beliefs, truth, and devout Practices, traction. The teaching of Christ produces holiness. That's what godliness is moving towards. It's moving towards the standard. It's moving towards the standard of holiness. It says um, that here, 
Paul says the false teacher refuses to submit to the teaching of the Holy Scripture. Um, Why does he do this? There's many reasons, but let me point out two things. One, it says in verse 4, they are puffed up with conceit. There's a particular attitude. Verse 4, it says, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words. There are actually some very strong Greek words in this particular verse. The English phrase, he is puffed up with conceit, is the translation of one particular Greek word. The Greek lexicon, um, it provides this definition. It says, to be so arrogant as to practically be demented. To be insanely arrogant and extremely proud. To be very arrogant. That's the Greek lexicon. So, in other words, I I would put it this way, understanding that they don't see reality. Right? They argue about words, and they don't see reality. Now, um, I I went to seminary. And you all know those, like, the cage stage of seminarians. The cage stage is when you should lock them in a cage. Because what are they, they're trying to figure it out. And all they want to do is what? Fight about words. Right? That's what they, that's, you know, they're trying to figure it out. And they're just like always, it, it's not what, it could be talking about that. Certainly seminarians can get off track and, and that kind of thing. And words are important because truth matters. But here what it's saying is that it's not, it's not about a seminarian trying to discover truth and trying to get at truth and figure it out. It's not talking about that. It's saying they have a particular attitude, that they're puffed up with conceit. They already think they know, and what are they doing? They're defining things, or I would say redefining things. They're redefining words out of what? Their arrogance and their conceit. The difficulty that we have cosmically is over who gets to write the dictionary. Who gets to define the playing field? It is God who is the creator, who has created all things, who gets to say what reality is because he created it. We ought to go by God's words, not by those that redefine the dictionary. We have a war of words, and what the Bible is telling you very clearly, that those that want to redefine reality are arrogant, but they're doing it from a particular place. And this happens inside the church, and it happens outside the church, and that's why we need to look at this cosmically. We need to understand that this can happen inside the church, and certainly is happening in America. We can see that. We can see that there, there are churches that are still closed because they have no backbone. They're not proclaiming God's word. And there's this redefinition that comes from a place of conceit and arrogance. Now, we need to guard ourselves. We need to look at this cosmically because we tend to think like, well, the church is this box and somehow the world doesn't affect and I can go. And and that's wrong thinking. Don't draw those lines. Yes, you're a Christian, but... And and yes, God's word is true, and there are certain lines that we should draw, but we have to be careful about the, um, we call this our our own context, right? And allowing our own context to overwhelm the text. Rather, we need to let the text inform our context. See, what's happening here is that the false teacher will not submit to the word of God in the church, but seeks to promote his own doctrine. He is arrogant in that he does not see reality. The one who is puffed up with this kind of of pride will not do what James in in, in the Bible calls us to do, which is to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. You see, this is the starting point of the Christian life. 
When God draws to himself through Christ and through the word of God and spirit, he humbles us so that we receive the word, doing what? Submitting to the word humbly. I I tell you, it's it's a joy to see that in the church, to see lives that are transformed. We have some young people that have come into the church and they're living in particular ways. And what we've had is we've had the church through the preaching of the word and through small groups, just lovingly proclaiming the truth. And it's, it's pretty wild because all of a sudden they begin to wake up and they go, wait a minute. I know that Jesus loves me. I know that Jesus has saved me, but I'm not living according to what God's word says. And to see them changing, that's amazing. That is absolutely changing their lifestyle, their location, their um, changing everything because they're saying like, well, if this is how reality is and this is how life works, then I'm living actually against everything that is good and right and true. And what I need to do is, is line up my life with the king because he's good and he's loving and he is for me. I am condemned already, but he is the Savior. And because of what he's done, I want to live in such a way that brings him glory. I want to see reality in that way. Church, keep living by the truth with traction, and it will lead to transformation. It starts, though, with you, godliness. That's what Paul is instructing Timothy here. How can we tell the difference then between a bold and righteous contender for the faith and one who is just controversial and quarrelsome? That's an important question. Attitude has a lot to do with it. So let me give you a couple of questions. It's where they place the emphasis. Do they run to the truth and seek to uphold it? Or do they fixate on controversial things and run to them at every opportunity? See, that's how you tell the difference. Second, do they build up or tear down? Do they build up or tear down? It's either one or the other. They're either seeking to do what Jesus does, which is build up, or they're continually seeking to, like an acid, dissolve the good work that the Spirit of God and the Word of God that Jesus gave his body and blood to do in this world is accomplishing. They're either building up or they're tearing down. And what about their timing and their delivery? What about their timing and their delivery? It's a little bit hard to describe, but I think um, if you're a parent or you've been a child, you know the difference between an honest question and a defiant question, don't you? There's just something to that. Christ said, you will know them by their fruits, and the same applies here. Um, Here, the the verse talks about an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words. What do those produce? Verses 4 and 5 tell us what it produces. Envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Right? There is a voracious desire. It's a lust that moves and produces these kinds of things. It's constant friction. That's why Paul wrote to his co-worker Titus, and he said this, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. For a person who stirs up dissension after warning him once, then twice, have nothing to do with them, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. The second thing that Paul mentions concerning the motivations of false teacher is found at the very end of verse 5 um, with these words, imagining that godliness is a means of great gain. Right? Imagining that godliness is a means of great gain. Now that godliness is their standard of godliness, not God's standard of godliness. They are redefining words and they are saying here is a standard 
right? Here's this standard, and you have to live by this standard. I'm going to tell you what my standard is, and you need to live by this standard. And what they believe is that by having people conform to their standard, what will happen? They will gain. Now, I want you to think about this cosmically. Certainly think about it in the church, for it operates the same way in both spheres. There's something that's happening by a redefinition of the standard and saying you need to conform to this standard. And if you conform to this standard, then I will gain. That's what's happening. Know that that's, this is what the Bible is saying is behind the redefinition of a standard. If I can get you to conform, then I got you. And now I will gain because you are under my control. They care little about the truth. And they're willing to say whatever needs to be said to gain a following and prosper in the things of the world. I have a feeling that we will focus more on that in our series on God and government. So we'll leave it there. So untruth produces ungodly division, but truth produces godliness and contentment. False teachers imagine that godliness is a means of great gain. But Paul says in verse 6 that godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. This is what the truth produces. Right? When you live by the truth, you're settled. And everything is okay. It's contentment. Because you don't need one more thing. And one more experience. And one more dollar. And one more relationship. You're not trying to self-satisfy. Because you're satisfied by Jesus. And so what you're trying is to, to do, you're striving in this world is to glorify. And those that are striving to glorify are doing that out of a spirit of contentment, of rest. Because they know that they don't have to prove anything to anyone. Because they know that their sin and their striving, their sin is forgiven and their striving is made whole in Jesus. He is the standard. And in the standard, we rest because we measure up to the standard because of him. False teachers pretend to be godly not because they see godliness as beneficial to themselves. No, a false teacher's religious devotion is a means of earthly gain, but a true believer, a servant of Jesus Christ, understands that godliness, along with contentment, are themselves a true treasure. To be content is to be satisfied with what you have and whom you are, who owns you. It's Jesus who owns you. The one who is content is satisfied in God and with God's will for them. And that's why he explains in verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can do what? Take nothing out of the world. I said last week that there's a focus, and I think in, um, in Paul's thinking that, and this is my guess as a preacher, that he's thinking through Ecclesiastes, and that maybe Paul had Ecclesiastes 5 in mind when he, um, when he writes this to, to Timothy and to the Ephesian church and to us. Ephesians chapter 5, or Ecclesiastes chapter 5 says this, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment. Okay, now note this. Note in this passage, joy. Note this. Let me start over. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also 
to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. Do you see that? If you're always looking to the next thing, are you really enjoying life right now? If you're always looking, if you're afraid of missing out, if you're always scanning through, um, if, if, if social media has its hooks on you, you probably aren't enjoying actually living. And what it says is that joy of what? Contentment in the moment with what you have is a gift from God. It's part and parcel with godliness. If you can say, I'm, I can enjoy this moment, I'm right here, or if you're like this while everybody else is here, you're probably not content. In fact, you're not content. But it's a joy. God gives, he, this, he says, God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Right? You ever watch a small child play? Like he says that here that um, he will not remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Like a child wrapped in its play knows nothing of the rest of the world except for what's right in front of them. That is true contentment. Just focus on that thing. That's, that's the idea, that we are content with what's in front of us, with what we have, the lot that we have in life, and we find joy in that. But this doesn't mean complacency. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't goal set. It doesn't mean those kinds of things. But it means that we are able, we have the ability to honor the Lord's day and make it holy, separate from the other days of the week, that we are present with one another, that we invite each other into our homes and we enjoy a meal and people's presence and we give glory to God for what he has given to us because it is contentment and we are content with the truth that God gives to us. Why? Because we're saved and we're safe. And life is about God's glory. It's not about us. It's about him. And so we are able to rest. That's why in verses 9 and 10, Paul contrasts great gain, the great gain of godliness and contentment with the curse of worldliness and discontentment, saying, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. I've emphasized, just to wrap this up, the theme of desire in this passage. It's there. Truth matters. And for this reason, it is important that we guard our minds. But it matters, too, because truth matters, that we also guard our hearts. That we not have an unhealthy craving. And unhealthy cravings lead to controversy and quarrels about words because we want to redefine reality so that we can manipulate it to get what we want and what we desire because we desire the things of this world and we imagine that a new standard, my standard, is a means to great gain because we desire what we want to have it but it will consume us and it will destroy us. But godliness with contentment is great gain. So if we are to be found faithful, we must keep our hearts and our lives as well. Truth matters, but so does the traction it has in our lives. There are some things that we should love, and there's other things that we should hate. There are some attractions that are right, and there are some that are wrong. Just as we are responsible for the control of our thoughts and our words and our deeds, so we too are responsible for the control of our desires and affections. God's given us emotions. He's given us desires, but he has called us to rule over them 
and not for them to rule over us. The greatest sin in our world right now is hurting someone's feelings. We live in a world in which feelings, desires, cravings create the standard. No, truth creates traction. Truth creates the standard, not feelings. Feelings are a gift, and they are good, but they are not the standard. Our affections are simply an aspect of our inner life in which we have control over. And God has given us his word. He's given us good counselors by his word to understand how we ought to live with control over our feelings. God gives us victory in that area. And that's why the scripture commands us, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Because these desires are the root of all kinds of evil. Christ has set us free. And he has set us free to live in truth and to gain traction in the world. And that is why he has said in Galatians chapter 5, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Truth matters. So Christian, guard your mind. Desires matters. So guard your heart, lest we wander away from the faith and pierce ourselves with many pangs. Godliness, godliness with contentment is indeed great gain. Take these next few moments. I'm going to pray and take these next few moments to, if you have not already, confess sin, be free of sin. But also in these moments, think about maturity. Satan is an accuser, and you might come here today and say, I'm not there yet. Satan, don't let Satan accuse you of immaturity in the same way that he accuses sin. We are here to grow, and God gives great grace. Sin we confess, and it's done with. It's over. There's forgiveness. There's forgiveness at the cross. But you also must set your heart and your mind on growth, on following Jesus, I'm becoming more mature. Maturity is something that we ought to, to move forward and go after. So whatever that is, right? don't allow Satan to say, well, you are not that already. Growth takes time. What is your next step? Maybe in these next few moments, after considering your life and your sin and forgiveness that Jesus offers, you might consider what your next step is. Maybe it is in the area of contentment. Maybe it's in, in the area of service. Maybe it's in the area of generosity or discipleship. Let the Spirit of God work the Word of God into your life and do His will. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for this text. You've blessed us this morning. And we pray that we may surrender and submit in obedience to You. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.